Uh, Rick Madison, Rick and Friends, thanks so much for listening. And we have a very special guest, uh, leader of the BC Liberals, Kevin Falcon. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Rick. Look forward to it. Now, I, I wanted to chat a bit about uh, the life in the private sector, and uh, it, it's got to help you in political life, I would think. Just can you elaborate on that? Sure, I, I do. I just think, you know, I've spent the last 10 years, just to remind some of your viewers and listeners, the last 10 years in the private sector. And, uh, you know, then prior to that, I spent 12 years in public life as Minister of Finance, Minister of Health, Minister of Transportation. Um, and then when I, prior to that, I was in the private sector too. And I, I just think that having that private sector background is important when you go into government, because I think the biggest challenge I see right now with this NDP government is, is not that they're bad people because I they're not. Uh, and it's not that they don't mean well, because I think they really do. It's just, they don't know what they're doing um, because they haven't got the background and the skill set to understand how to manage, oversee and execute on public policy with a large complex organization like government. And so you get some people there that whose entire lives, frankly, have been either in politics or as political staffers, but they have no public sector, private sector background. And therefore, they're not focused on outcomes and results and measuring your progress and all those things that we take for granted working in the private sector that is completely new to them. And that's, I think, the key benefit of having that private sector background and experience. Because I, I do think with your development background, it is going to allow us to move forward with some of the, the housing crisis and, and some of the issues regarding inflation, because as you know, uh, some of the fees associated with housing can create a bit of a, a quagmire when it comes to building. So you, you would know that instinctively as a developer. Absolutely. And, and look, I had a front row seat. I mean, I worked on the capital side of the business, so I wasn't so much on the development side, but nevertheless, I had a front row seat on local government inefficiencies and how many of those delays and and, and challenges can also add to the cost of housing and limit the supply getting into the marketplace. Now you couple that with a provincial NDP government that doesn't even diagnose the problem properly. They layered on a whole bunch of taxes at the outset of their uh, government uh, in their very first budget. All that did was add costs and they didn't deal with the big issue, which is lack of supply. And only now in their second term in office is their housing minister, David Eby, suddenly waking up to the realization that, gee, maybe supply might have something to do with the fact that we have the highest housing prices in North America. So from someone that's been in the private sector, I say, well, no kidding, Einstein. I mean, this is obvious to anyone uh, that was working in, in, in the private sector. So I just think that it's important that we have leadership and a premier that instinctively gets what the challenge is and knows how to create the right incentives to help the private sector deliver exactly what we need, which is more of everything. I do like the fact that he's uh, quietly uh, joining UDI boards and meetings and, and getting yes. getting Trying the to rest of the situation. <laughs> um, uh, second question. Uh, the word pragmatic comes up a lot when you talk about your style. Uh, and, and it must mean something to you to be pragmatic in decision making. Uh, just tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, what's often guided me uh, most successfully in, in public life and in my private life is I think being principled is really important. So having principles that sort of act as an anchor and guide you as you go forward is really, really important. And I want our party to be have have a core set of principles that act as that important guiding post uh, as we go forward. Um, but the pragmatism is about making sure that that you apply those principles uh, equally and fairly. A good example of that would be uh, today you have situations where people that are upset about whatever environmental issue might be their flavor of the day. Um, you know, old growth is, is something that some environmentalists in the lower mainland have taken upon themselves to just go out when they feel like it and shut down traffic uh, without any regard to the impact that's having on people, not just being late for work, but people trying to get to critical cancer appointments, et cetera. And I've said very clearly that we should, uh, you know, first recognize that the right to protest is fundamental to our democracy. And as Voltaire, I believe, once said, you know, I may not agree with what you say, but I will die defending your right to say it. I'm very much from that school. I believe that protesters and people with an issue have every right to make sure they can raise their voice and protest and do it without breaking the law. And the moment they start breaking the law, um, then I say we come down on them very hard, whether it's 
environmental protesters or whether it's trucker convoy folks. I don't care. To me, it's about respect for the law and making sure that we protest within the confines of a free and open democratic society. I think you raise a good point because I think BC residents um, have a lot more respect for a cause if it's followed through the proper channels. And if you if you're trying to make a statement, sometimes making a statement where you are hijacking somebody else's livelihood is probably not the most pragmatic approach, no question. No, it's not. And I've been really clear about the fact that there needs to be real consequences. In fact, I've been specific. I've said that I would bring in changes to the Motor Vehicle Act to bring in a specific offense for those that are disrupting the regular flow of traffic. And that the penalty I recommend, I'm open to making it tougher or easier depending on the conversations we have. But what I've suggested is we start out on first offense with 50 hours of community work. And here in Vancouver, that would mean cleaning up garbage on the downtown east side and, and perhaps cleaning off graffiti on the walls of uh, many of our businesses in Chinatown. That'd be a real good start for these folks. And if they do it again, then they can look at serving time in jail. But I think there's got to be consequences because we cannot have a situation where you've got a government like we have today that plays footsies with these folks. We've had cabinet ministers from the NDP government go up to protest uh, lines like up in northern BC at Houston where they're protesting pipelines and li literally deliver lunches to the protesters uh, you know as a nudge nudge wink wink don't worry we're on your side we had another uh, NDP uh, cabinet minister write a letter to the RCMP saying stop being so rough in these people when you arrest them I mean it's just it's ridiculous so you you cannot have you know be speaking out of both sides of the mouth and then try and t pretend to talk tough whenever something happens that's what they typically do so you got to be consistent. You got to be principled. And and it seems to me that during the the logger rally, uh, there was even um, I guess a pause or a deference to even meeting with them and communicating with them and, and figuring out the core issues. Is that would that be a a new method for you? Which was no matter what kind of protest, would it be to create dialogue? Oh, for sure. I think you actually just make things worse when you just try to straight arm them. I mean, you know, you, you have to recognize that even if you disagree with people that, you know, they're concerned enough that they you know, want to speak up and make some noise about it. Our job as uh, public elected officials is to make sure we give them that opportunity to share their, their concerns and make sure that we're fully aware of their position on that particular issue, uh, whether it's truckers or whether it's environmental protesters. Uh, I'm very open to understanding their concerns and making sure that we respond, uh, if necessary, with some changes to public policy. I just do not accept the idea that, you know, um, breaking the law is the right way to bring about uh, the best results. Um, I, I do want to thank you for anyone who puts their name forward for public office. It, it is not an easy job. Um, it, it seems to me that your children were part of that decision making. Um, was that the primary reason why you put your name forward? You know, it was because I say to people that the reason I left public life and announced my retirement in 2012, I was deputy premier and finance minister at the time. My eldest daughter was not quite three years old and my wife was pregnant with her second daughter. That wasn't public at the time, but I looked at, you know, my workload and schedule and I thought, you know, I think I've done a bit. I spent 12 years. I've got a lot done across the province. I could look with pride on projects, you know, everything from the, you know, the William Bennett Bridge to the Sea to Sky Highway to the Canada Line to the Kicking Horse Canyon, et cetera. And so I felt like it was time to leave. And I wanted to be a present dad. I wanted to make sure that I was there for my girls as they grow up. And today they're 12 and nine, but I, I'm coming back for them too, not them specifically, but their gen that generation, because I think it's so important that at a time when I'm seeing a vacuum of leadership almost everywhere in, in government, uh, that, that people that have a skill set and have something to offer should step forward and, and do what we can, even if there's a, a, a price you're going to pay, maybe financially, maybe time away from family or what have you. I do think that uh, uh, it's important that we step forward and, and offer up potential solutions and, and uh, try and do the best we can for a province that I love in a country that I'm very proud of. It's interesting. My daughter's thirteen, and and uh, and and I think you know about their her future going forward, and I think that's the the two things that motivate people are pleasure and pain. And it sounds like uh, the pain was too much for you. 
Yeah, when they were little, for sure. Um, I love my girls more than anything, uh, and they will always be a priority for me, even when I'm in government. But uh, you know, the the pleasure I think is is the ability to really get things done. You know, some people I often wonder why do they even run? Because they go there and they just talk and they, you know, but they don't get anything done. To me, it's an opportunity cost. Every day you spend in government is a day you could be spending time with your family or building a business or what have you. And and so for me, it's about getting big things done to the benefit of the province as a whole. And that's something that 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 gives me the passion to do what I do. Agreed. Agreed. Um the NDP have, uh, and this has come up in, in previous interviews, have gone on a bit of a hiring bonanza while in power. Um, and what is your attitude towards adding those jobs to government? Well, it's actually the, the scale at which they've um, blown up the bureaucracy with new hirings is shocking, to be honest with you. I, I didn't believe the numbers when I first looked at them because they've actually added about 120,000 new full-time employees just over the past five years. I mean, you know, if you're hiring 20,000 plus people a year, that's literally anyone that walks in the door, hired, 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 you know, you're like, it's hard to hire that many people. Somehow they figured out how to do this. But but the problem is that each of those individuals, uh, we call them FTEs and government full-time equivalents, cost about $100,000 when you add in their benefit packages. And I guess, you know, I, I look at that and say, well, that's almost a 30% increase in the civil service in five short years and and the question i always ask the public when i'm out there is is there anyone out there that has seen a 30 percent improvement in services because i sure haven't and nobody i've spoken to says oh don't worry healthcare is getting better and we're seeing lots of improvements on crime in the streets etc cetera, etc cetera. that's not happening and what that tells me is we've got an ndp government that's just hiring bureaucracy and administrators and paper pushers at a time when we need to be focusing on hiring people that are going to get results, frontline doctors, frontline nurses and care aides, people that are focused on making sure that we get good outcomes. That's not what we're seeing, unfortunately, and that's probably why we're facing a situation where, you know, even the outgoing Premier John Horgan says our health healthcare system is crumbling, and teetering, and he's totally correct. It's imploding upon itself, and it's not been helped, frankly, by all the bureaucrats they've been hiring. It's interesting. You you raise a good point about the to hire twenty thousand people per year during what some would call a, a skilled labor shortage is actually a feat in itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I'll, I'll leave that one uh, out there. Um, and and it goes into the next question I have, which is uh, healthcare is a mess, um, and obviously it's 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 a really complex layered beast, and I want to call it a beast because it is. In, in, in your eyes, what steps are we, are we needing to take to, to fix some of the fundamental problems that healthcare is facing for BC? Sure. It's a great question and an important one. I could spend 25 minutes on this issue alone, but I, I won't. I don't want to scare you, but it's a complex issue that, you know, um, <clears throat> as someone once used to say to me, a former Premier Gordon Campbell used to say, for every person that's got a simple solution to a large complex problem, it's usually wrong. And so too is the case in healthcare. However, the complexity of the challenges doesn't mean that we cannot get far better results. We could. We've got a government that ideologically believes that only government should do everything, especially in the healthcare field. And to the point where they're literally hiring back thousands of people to make, cook, and deliver food in our hospitals, as opposed to having that being delivered by the private sector folks that do nothing but get up every single day and figure out how do we deliver the best possible food and, and do it in most cost effectively? Um, you know, that's the kind of things they focus on. And, and when they should be focusing on making sure we have more nurses and more doctors and more care aides in the hospitals. Um, I'll give you an example of, of just how they don't think these things through. Um, they're in their second term right now. Uh, when I first got elected in 2001, the first thing we did was to take the number of training spaces we had for doctors from 128, which was what we inherited from the NDP. And by the way, they had reduced that number during the 1990s, if you can believe it, because they thought that's how you save money. If you train less doctors, you won't have to pay as many. So we took it from 128 to 288, more than doubling 
the training spaces because we knew it takes you know six to eight years to train doctors so you have to get going immediately and then we expanded the training opportunities throughout the province at UBC Okanagan up at University of Northern BC at UVic because we knew that if you could train uh, young folks in their communities there's a good chance they'll graduate and stay there and practice which is important especially in rural British Columbia but under this NDP government they're in their second term as I've said before they haven't added one single additional training space. And they wonder why we've got a shortage of doctors. We've got no new ones coming into the pipeline either. That's terrifying. And so as they go forward, they love doing announcements. So they, they announced this new idea of having urgent primary care centers. And they said they, they go around talking about how they've opened up more than two dozen of them across the province. Here's the problem. As Dr. Peter Gladstone in Victoria said, you might as well be opening up Tim Hortons because there's nobody in them. There's no staff. And it's true because they didn't have a, they believe it or not, had no human resources plan to figure out how they were going to staff these places that they were opening up. And what these UPCs did, and we call them oopsies because it's a mistake, is they just further fractured the family practice system. You know, um, GPs and family physicians are the bedrock of our healthcare system. And they are so critical because they provide that longitudinal care for individuals to make sure that they're being looked after for their chronic illnesses or as they age, they'll have more issues to deal with. And the problem is when they get pushed away or can't get a family doctor, as one in five British Columbians today cannot access a family physician, they then go to clinics. Problem is we've got the longest wait times in Canada when they go to a walk-in clinic. And then they try to go to these UPCCs and, and they can't find anyone there. They can't get an appointment. So that's in part why the system is crumbling. So we need leadership that understands that we have got to make big changes in our healthcare system to focus on the patients. I care about the patients. I don't care about the system. They spend all their time thinking about the bureaucracy. I'm thinking about the patients. How do we make sure we get the best possible services and outcomes and results for those patients? It, it just seems odd that, you know, from, and, and again, we could spend a lot of time on healthcare. But it seems fundamentally that, you know, what you just said would probably resonate with a number of, of BC citizens. Why is that such a, a leap, I guess, for the, the NDP to understand? Is it a lack of consultation? Like, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm fundamentally kind of shocked yeah. uh, I, I a bit. Think, I would argue it's just a strong ideological predisposition they have. They just really fundamentally, especially this health minister, Adrian Dix, he really believes government is the solution to every problem. And what I often have found is that government is the problem. And it's not because there's bad people in the health system. They mean well. But, you know, we've got to make sure that we are focusing on outcomes, not focusing on how many people we've hired or focusing on the wrong things. You know, like, you know, bringing back food services as if that's going to be, I, you know, I don't think there's many people that harken back to the glorious days of great food under government-run, you know, food delivery. I mean, this is the kind of... A misdirection and misappropriation of time and resources that they spend their time doing. Uh, I think we should be focused on the patient and making sure that we're getting the best possible service for those patients. And, you know, um, we've just got an ideologically driven government that's never going to get there because they're so focused on beefing up their system. Um, they keep saying, saying they've hired 30,000 people in healthcare, for example. And while that's true, it's just not the right people. You know, hiring food service workers isn't, you know, and more bureaucrats and administrators is not what the system needs. It needs more doctors and nurses and care aides and people working in actual offices delivering services to patients that need it. That's the big missing gap. Uh, they just think more bodies is somehow going to bring better results. That's not the case. Yeah, administrators uh, often don't cure a lot of uh, issues that... Uh that hit us, no question. Consensus is uh, is vital to create momentum on, on change. Now, again, this is one of those things where you have a party that can sometimes be fractured. Uh, how would you create consensus within your party just to make sure we're all on the same page? Well, you know, I think it's important to recognize, you know, getting, I would say it a little bit differently. Um, consensus can also be a barrier to actually getting anything done. There are many, many big projects I've been involved with where it's very difficult to get consensus because you're not always going to get everyone agreeing on what the right direction is. That's where leadership comes in because a leader has to be able to say, okay, I've listened to all of the different discussions. 
We're not quite at consensus here. Here's where we're going though. Um, and, and you plant that flag and then you get everyone moving over in that direction. And if you do not do that, you will not get much accomplished. And one of the things that I've really noticed uh, with this two-term NDP government as I've traveled in every part of the province is there's nothing happening. I mean, I, it, it just shocks me. I was Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure for six years. And I could, I could sit here and list dozens of projects that I was involved with that got underway and built and, and opened up uh, during my term as transportation minister. And yet everywhere I go, I see nothing, very, very little happening, in especially in terms of major projects. What they do do is they cancel really smart projects like the 10-lane Massey Bridge that the BC Liberals had started, had already spent $100 million to, to get it underway, and the NDP canceled that. And the, they want to do an eight-lane tunnel that's going to take almost another decade. It costs billions of dollars more and makes absolutely no sense. Now, that's just one example, but I've also seen them, you know, and I'm sorry to use lower mainland examples only because they're the ones that are, are immediately come to mind, but there's a Patalo Bridge here in, in the lower mainland that connects Surrey and New Westminster that is over 84 years old. It was built in 1938. And the NDP are replacing this four-lane bridge, which is good, but they're replacing it with another four-lane bridge. And it's just, this is insanity. I mean, the population has grown dramatically since then. Surrey, which is on one end of the bridge, is the fastest growing community in the province. And yet they will, you know, go ahead and spend, uh, well, they say 1.4 billion. It will be way more by the time it's done. It's already a year behind schedule. And they're going to replace it with the same number of lanes. So that's the kind of um, thinking that just blows my mind because, at the, and of course, the Royal BC Museum being the most extreme recent example, it's it's just this lack of understanding of how to how to make decisions for the future generations. We talked about my kids. When I think about infrastructure, I'm thinking not just about what would convenient us today, be convenient for us today, but I'm thinking about the next generation, making sure that when all those electric vehicles are on the roads, that they've got bridges that they can actually get across. Um, not, you know, building four lanes, but making sure we're adding lanes to deal with future growth. And, and, and I think that's the key is, is uh, the track record is black and white as far as the NDP initiatives and, and canceling and then and, and trying to create a, another bridge. And again, I've heard of this, uh, of this project numerous times and, and the problems associated with it. Um, and, and just to go off of that, it seems like you do say this often enough, which is let's, let's get it, let's get it done. So is that part and parcel with what we get with uh, Kevin Falcon? Absolutely. Uh, you know, when I was in the private sector uh, for a decade as a senior executive with a company called Anthem Capital, um, and I, I can tell you, we had on the wall of our office some big lettering, fluorescent, uh, like a neon light that said, get X done. And I won't use the word, it's not a good word that you might want to use in front of your children, but it's important. It, it, it reflected the culture of the company, get stuff done stuff wasn't the word but you get my understanding yeah. get stuff done and you know that's what we have to understand in government there has to be a sense of urgency about fixing problems Can't, i don't want to be discussing a doctor shortage you know a decade from now let's get stuff done when people need uh, you know a new bridge or infrastructure let's get it done and that requires direction from the top the problem it's you know there's very good people in the civil service i think it's important to point this out i, I i'm concerned about the fact that they've hired, you know, increased it by 30% in five years. But but there are some very good people in the civil service. You should know that. But they also require really clear direction and leadership out of government. Because if they haven't got that, they're, they're not going to just on their own initiative say, let's come out and get stuff done. They need to have that leadership so that they know, okay, they want to go in this direction, we will execute on it. And when you give them that clear direction, they're great. The civil service can be very, very good. And you can hold them accountable too. That's the beauty of it. And they will be held accountable if you've got the right people saying, we want this done. Here are the key performance indicators we're going to hold you to account for. Now go do it. And they will do a great job. So I, I really think it's important your listeners know that. Um, you can build a culture within the public service that is all about getting stuff done too. Believe me, you can. I've seen it in the transportation ministry and the health ministry when I was there briefly. Um, but they need that leadership and direction. And that's what we will provide. That's what a Kevin Falcon uh, as premier government will provide, I can assure you. Well, I like, I like that word accountability. That's for sure. 
Where do you stand on the, the BC speculation tax? As you have said in the past, it only represents, you know, potentially 4% of home, uh, homeowners. Um, will, it, will it stay the same if you become premier or will it change? Well, the NDP tried to use this as a, you know, because what they, what the NDP do really well is they name things really well. So they named this tax a speculation tax. And the reason they did that is because people are like, oh, well, we don't want speculation. So that must be a good thing. And uh, I just happen to point out to people it has nothing to do with speculation. Yeah, what it does do is penalize people that own a second property uh, or if they have more than that. And, um, you know, so most of those people, by the way, are British Columbians uh, that own those second properties. So if you have a, a, a cabin or, or a cottage up in Kelowna on the lake, you're paying a speculation tax. They're saying that you're a speculator, even though that might have been in the family for generations. Um, so I think clarity around what is actually, uh, you know, what that tax actually is, is important because they're dishonest about it. But I have not said I would get rid of it, which is what they try to do, because they want to be able to go to the public and say, oh, yeah, Kevin Falcon wants to get rid of speculation tax and he's going to support speculators. No, what I have said is I'm going to look at all of the costs that government has imposed on housing, including all the blizzard of new taxes that the NDP brought in in their first budget, which included the misnamed speculation tax, but also vacant land taxes. They brought in school taxes that had nothing to do with schools and all these other taxes that they imposed on housing. And they did that because they said they were gonna help make housing more affordable. So let's check in. Here we are five years later, they're in their second term. We have the highest housing prices in North America right here in British Columbia, third highest on the planet. So all the, all the new costs that they've imposed on housing have done absolutely nothing to deliver more affordable housing. And only now, as I said earlier, as David Eby suddenly figured out, oh gee, maybe the fact that there's no, not very much new supply coming into the market might have something to do with it. Well, I'm glad he's getting an education from people that actually work in the industry. Uh, I'm happy to help him out anytime he wants to understand the housing business. But frankly, because he's delayed so long and the NDP have delayed so long because of their dogmatism and their ideology that thought it was all about evil developers and foreign buyers, now they realize that's not the case. We just went through two and a half years of COVID where there was no foreign buyers in our market at all, none. And yet we still saw prices going up because there wasn't enough supply and they don't understand that. And frankly, I haven't got the patience to you know, wait until they finally get educated on how the market works. Uh, supply and demand is always a fundamental economic principle. And if you haven't got enough supply and you've got growing demand, especially domestically, you're gonna see prices go up. They haven't figured that out or they're just starting to. We've known that instinctively from the very beginning and I was in the industry. So I will make sure that we flood the zone with all kinds of new housing, condos, townhomes, single family, whatever we can, more market rental, more affordable rental. Um, and we've just got to do everything we can to make sure that we get that new supply into the marketplace. And that will start to break the back of some of the affordability issues. Because I can tell you this, if you're a landlord that owns rental properties, you love the fact that there's very new rental product coming onto the market. But when it starts flooding into the market, suddenly you're having to compete for tenants and you will compete aggressively because you don't want to have a bunch of empty apartments sitting there. So if the neighbor down the road is you know, offering incentives like, you know, no down, no deposits required or cutting the rents or what have you, you'll be quick to compete. You speak, um, you speak about supply and demand, and I'm not sure uh, that that follows in uh, Victoria right now. So uh, we'll just leave that one. Uh, Rick Madison here with the uh, leader of the BC Liberals, Kevin Falcon. And uh, Kevin, you're a fan of Ronald Reagan. And he, and because of you, I've actually watched the last speech he gave in the Oval Office, and I found myself emotional. It was, uh, I'm not American, but I found myself emotional. And he, he really leaned on the, we the people was important. And what do those words mean to someone like you? Yeah, well, thank you for that, Rick. And I'm glad you went and listened to that last speech. I often, you know, ask people to do that because I think it just encapsulates the kind of leadership that we so desperately need um, in the world right now. Uh, a kind of leader that brings people together, that, you know, has that sunny, optimistic vision of the future that reminds us of how far we've come, but how far we can go. 
And it's just something that I think is very important. I think it's important for our party, uh, for example. You know, I've said that I was going to revitalize and re-energize and, and potentially rebrand this party. And to do so, we need to make sure we have a positive, optimistic vision that says to people, you are welcome in this big tent BC Liberal Party, regardless of whether, you know, uh, what religion you belong to or who you choose to love. There always is going to be a place for you in this party if you share our principles that we talked about earlier. And and so that's something that I, I think is so important that Ronald Reagan encapsulated so beautifully. And I wish we had more of that, frankly, in the world today. What a leader. He just uh, he spoke and walked. Uh, it seemed like the truth. And and I know he had some, uh, you know, he, he's often revered. And it's interesting how history gives us some perspective on some of these great leaders. And uh, I was a fan. So uh, okay. interesting. Um, are you going to have a picture of him in your office? Yes, I probably will. Because I've uh, from my old office, uh, when I was in the private sector, I had a big uh, a picture of him. It's a painting, actually. It's quite remarkable. And um, that's been moved over to my new party office. So, yes, okay. see, he's going to hang around as an inspiration. And the other inspiration, by the way, was Margaret Thatcher, because as a woman, I thought she's an incredible role model to, to young girls and women everywhere. As someone that in a very patriarchal sort of society like England, that's very class driven and all the rest of it. And here she is, the daughter of a grocer you know, that of very modest means, you know, rose up through a male-dominated political world and became one of the world great leaders, uh, you know. And so she's another person that I, you know, also admire and I think is a great role model for girls and women everywhere. I grew up during that uh, that time and, and her intellectual capabilities and and she was uh, an excellent orator and she mm -hmm. really articulated well. And, and you're right, it was... Uh, I didn't realize at the time how much of a uh, an icon she would become but I also didn't realize just how amazing it was for for this woman for a G7 to be in mm -hmm. that position of power and I, I thought it would be more of the same but as we know it uh, didn't really happen that way so uh, yeah. good reference actually yes mental illness and, and homelessness is part of your platform um, and and let's reflect back on on anything and, and good and bad that the NDP has uh, initiated during their time, because that is really, that was part of their platform uh, on the initial run, that they were going to address those issues and and, uh, and and create more projects around that. What report card would you give them, plus minus, on that front? Wow, this is a tough one, because, um, you know, on the one hand, I would give them an A for best of intentions, because I do think they really do want to do something about this issue. I would give them an F in terms of outcomes, which are the things that I measure and think are very, very important. And the reason is, is, is because what the NDP are doing is saying, the way we're gonna deal with this problem is do more of the same and hope to get a different result. And, and not only is that not happening, they're getting the worst possible results. Um, and, and I'll explain why in a moment. Uh, first of all, just a quick check, we've got, um, every day, six people dying every day of overdoses. Uh, the, almost 80% of them are men. They're not just in the, you know, the skid row areas of our different respective communities, by the way, they're often, uh, you know, in the prime of their working lives. They're often, you know, blue collar, uh, sometimes white collar uh, folks that are dying of unplanned overdoses uh, in their own apartments or homes, for goodness sakes. This is a crisis and yet every year, it's gotten worse and worse and the government is just like they cannot get off of this you know this thing of theirs where the answer is safe drugs safe drugs safe supply you know if we can just give people safe and you know that may be part of the answer but it is not the only answer we need a massive investment in recovery options so that when people say you know what i want to have a chance to get off of my addiction Many fell into these addictions accidentally when they were got addicted to opioids to deal with a, a health issue. And now, you know, that the medical profession said, oh, gosh, you know, got to cut back those opioids, which they did, and probably for good reason. But now those folks can't get the pain management they need. So they go and they start buying these things illegally on the streets. And of course, they're laced with fentanyl or, or worse, carfentanyl. So you know, so I think we, we need to understand, first of all, the nature of the problem, who it is we're, we're trying to help, 
and understand that those folks are not going to go to a free you know place to pick up free drugs because most of their family and friends don't even know they're recreational drug users. So we, we've got to be a bit smarter about it than, than what we're currently doing. The other thing is to recognize the mental illness is a big part of the challenge we're facing on our streets. I was on the board of the Street to Home Foundation for, for almost a decade. Uh, that works to help the homeless here in the lower mainland, mostly in Vancouver. Uh, we've built over 3,000 units of housing, but more importantly, we've dug deep to understand who are these folks and how did they end up there and what are the issues they're dealing with and how can we better treat them? And we looked around the world, we traveled to different places around the world, the board members did, whether it was San Patriano in Italy or Delancey Street in San Francisco to try and learn from some addiction recovery programs that have been quite successful actually. And so those are the things that we ought to be looking at and seeing how we can, first of all, create facilities, 24 seven facilities, properly staffed with proper psychiatric and medical supports and get those most severely mentally ill off of the streets and into these 24 seven places so that they can properly be looked after and not just left to fend for themselves in the streets where they're exploited and abused and increasingly a danger, not just to themselves, but others. Um, we know that in Kelowna, uh, for example, there are 15 individuals, one five, that are last year were responsible for 1,000 police interactions. I mean, the, a small group of people can create a huge amount of social chaos. And David Eby's catch and release program, where they effectively have instructed local Crown Council to just ignore, you know, low level criminal activity, has resulted in a situation where people believe there's no consequences and there aren't. And as a result of that, the situation's getting much, much worse. So, so if we can get the mentally ill, stream them out, put them into proper care, 24-7 care, with the goal of getting them back into society one day with proper supports, many, frankly, will take years because they're, they've got severe mental health issues, but they deserve the compassion and respect to be looked after by society. And the balance, we need to make sure there's tough enforcement, that the police are able to enforce the law knowing that, that the remainder of the folks are just frankly low-level criminals that think they can come and spend a summer in Kelowna causing all kinds of problems. No way, no how. We have to make sure they're dealt with severely too so that people can feel safe in their own streets. And that's the kind of difference and change that Kevin Falcon uh, and a Kevin Falcon BC Liberal government would bring about. Now, thank you for immersing yourself in the space and, and really learning about this really complex issue. Um, the, the sidebar to that is, because Kelowna is semi-arid and, and has a very mild climate, we do attract, as Vancouver, Victoria do, a number of people from uh, out of province, uh, from across Canada. And, and I think municipally, we often talked about the burden that taxpayers here face by, you know, creating initiatives around the homelessness uh, issue. Is it, in your eyes, is this a... a is it a, a true partnership between municipal, provincial, federal, just based on the fact that we seem to be a hub for a number of people from across Canada? No, absolutely. Uh, you've nailed it. I mean, the fact of the matter is we've actually done careful surveys of the homeless. When we do our homeless count in Vancouver, for example, we ask follow-up questions where they're from, et cetera. We find about 20% of them, that number can fluctuate, but 20% of them are from outside the lower mainland. They're coming from either other parts of the province or indeed other parts of the country. Not surprisingly, people figure, I don't feel like spending my winter in downtown Toronto or Montreal. It's a lot milder over in British Columbia and people come over here often with the best of intentions, by the way. They think I'll get a job and, you know, I've got enough money for a couple months rent or what have you. But they run out of money, then they're sort of, you know, living in the car, then they have to sell the car, then they're couch surfing and then next thing you know, they're in the streets. And uh, if, if that is compounded with a drug addiction issue, then they really can spiral out of control. So we need to recognize that, um, you know, we, we started a program at Street to Home Foundation called Homeward Bound, where we provided dollars to help get them back to their communities in other parts of Canada, because they've got more supports there. They've got family, they've got friends, they've got a network. And so we would connect to make sure that the, the service providers there know they're coming back, and then we would send them back. And that can be good for them, and it frankly can be good for the province of BC too, so that you know people are going back to their to their home communities. But we also have to uh, understand we we just can't allow 
our cities to become like San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. Like I'm telling you, we are hurtling towards that future and I will not have it under a Kevin Falcon led government. I, I think we have to deal with these things. Some of the you know views that I put forward, I get that they're controversial, but I guarantee they're founded in real, real experience. I've spent time in the downtown east side. I've volunteered down there. I've worked in charities. I've been to low barrier shelters. I've watched what we've done in government when I was there and what the NDP are doing. And I can tell you it ain't working. And that goes true for our government and the NDP and all the way back to social credit when they started releasing people from Essendale and Riverview without proper supports. So we are going to change direction very boldly. And I think that, frankly, it'll cost a lot of money up front, but it will save us a lot of money in our corrections institutions, in our court systems, and in our policing, because they can finally spend their time focusing on people that aren't suffering with all these other mental health and addiction issues. Well, thank you for making that a priority. I know that uh, Kelowna Now has created a homelessness in, in Kelowna podcast just because there's a lot of different stakeholders that are all trying for the same thing, which is, you know, you mentioned good intentions. And it's just one of those issues that uh, continues to befuddle a lot of people. So good on you for making it a priority. NDP um, ha- policy on affordable housing doesn't seem to be working uh, with the highest house prices in history. What is, what is a, a solution? You talked about supply and demand. Is it, are we first day in the premier's office is that one of the things that we would put on because you're probably going to have a priority list let's face it is that going to be the top five top three oh yeah it'll be in the top three for sure uh because i don't want a whole generation of young people in this province giving up on the dream of ever owning a home and i I can tell you that most of them have 75 percent of them uh you know the gen z slash you know millennial generation don't believe that they'll ever be able to afford to own a home in british columbia and that's that not only is that extremely discouraging but it's problematic because for many people the equity they build up in their home is a big part of their retirement and you know so we have to make sure that we bring hope back to to folks and and i can tell you this is something that will seize my attention day and night and we will move quickly to make sure that we get that kind of uh, housing available for young people. And I've got lots of ideas around that. I will not announce them here on your show, but I will be doing that in the coming months uh, as we lead up to a future election to make sure that people really understand what it is that a Kevin Falcon led government will be doing to make sure that young people can have a credible uh, pathway to home ownership. And, And we can do that by the way. And I feel very confident about that, but we have to understand again, this comes back to the, the government ideology. I mean, this NDP government believed they announced, in fact, in, when they were running for office, that they were going to, in 2017 and again in 2020, that they, government, would build 114,000 units of affordable housing. Everyone in the private sector just laughed, like, that's ridiculous. There's no way they'll be able to do that. And sure enough, here they are in the second term. And how much have they built? 7,250. And we got that number from David Eby directly during estimates, uh, most recently, just last month. And uh, so 2,500 of those were started under the uh, BC Liberals. So they've reached 6% of their goal and they're in their second term. They're supposed to be doing this in 10 years. Clearly it's never gonna happen. Uh, What has to happen is we have to harness and unleash all the ingenuity and ability of the private sector to deliver what we need in the public sector. And if we need affordable homes, they'll build them. You just have to provide the right incentives to make sure that they want to build them. Um, I, I just very quickly will tell you that the, the biggest explosion of rental housing ever built in the history of this country took place between 1977 and 1983. And you might say, well, how, why, what happened? Well, they had a program federally called the MERB program, multi-unit residential building program. And they allowed developers to flow through capital cost allowance to limited partners that invested in rental projects. And so the developers said, hey, you know, that brings in a lot of capital. So you get a lot of, uh, you know, dentists, doctors and others that want to invest in these limited partnerships because they get to use the CCA allowance to shelter their own income. So that's an incentive to bring in capital. Then the developers go out and built all the rental. And that's why when you look around the province, you'll see so much of our rental properties from that vintage. And very little was built after that because the the economics didn't make a lot of sense for developers. So when they looked at very thin returns, you know, three, four percent on rental, building rental, or they looked at condo development, the condo returns were much higher. So they went to where they could make the better returns. So we just need to make sure we create the right incentives 
and we'll get the right results. And the private sector can help do that. It won't be BC housing, quite frankly. They can do a bit, but but they're not going to get get us out of this problem. And the NDP don't get that. I do. And and David Eby actually said that he would uh, help municipalities. Uh, cut red tape or something, or they wanted to get involved with the approval process. What is your thoughts on that? Well, I agree with it. I think he's picking up an idea that I've been speaking about for over a year, and he's learned some of that by you know meeting with the you know Urban Development Institute and people that actually make their living in the development business. And uh, you know, I think it's sort of made him realize, oh, gee, maybe part of the problem is that supply can't get on the market because we have so much red tape. By the way, both provincially and locally. And what I've said is that I would bring in legislation to bring certainty and transparency uh, uh, around the approval process at the local government level, because we've got to make sure that projects are getting through the system. And there's way too much nonsense and delay. I mean, it could take in Vancouver, it is not unusual to take five to six years to get a single tower built. I mean, and I want people to really understand that it, we fought a world war as part of the allied forces in Canada. To, to defeat Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan faster than it takes us to get a single tower built in the province of British Columbia. That is crazy. We've got to change that, and we will. Um, I want to talk about this, uh, and, and, and I get that feeling from you, the, uh, the, the get it done, um, you know, it just seems to be emanating off of you. Um, this is politics, though, and, and any time... Uh, politics gets into a mix. It seems like things can move at a glacial pace. Um, you seem like somebody that, you know, truly does want to move something forward. And again, within politics, within layers of government, sometimes that's tougher to do. Will that be a frustrating aspect for you? Like, how, how will you harness that? Uh, because, let's face it, government sometimes moves slowly. It just does. Yes, it does. And will it be frustrating for me? Absolutely it will. But the difference is that, you know, when I was in government, and this is where the experience really does matter, I spent 12 years as a cabinet minister and senior um, cabinet posts in government. And if you look at my record, and anyone can go and just take a look, uh, the one thing they cannot say about me is that the grass, you know, grew under my feet. I, I got a lot done because I, I I know how to drive forward and and execute on, on direction and, and get the bureaucracy to work with me to get big things done. And I, I just think that's important. So I will be frustrated, but I guarantee you this, we will get a lot done. Do not vote for Kevin Falcon if you don't want to see things happening. If you prefer to just sort of have status quo with you know, not very much happening, but lots of pleasant, happy talk, um, then vote NDP because they're really good at that. They're great at announcements. They're great at press releases. They're great at you know social media, praising the great job they're doing when nothing's actually happening on the ground. And when the results that we measure people by and governments by are the worst we've ever seen. And that's what I think that I really want the public to understand. There's a huge chasm between what this NDP government says and what the actual results are. And they should be judged for results. And if you do judge them by results, you want them out of there as quickly as possible because we're getting the worst possible results. And, and if you want a, a premier and a leader that is wants to be judged by results and is gonna move heaven and earth to get things done, and we'll deal with all the people and the status quo forces that try to stop you when you're in government from getting big things done, then you can support me because that's what I promise I will do. I will wake up every day thinking about the fact that I want to get big things done for my kids' generation. See, this whole interview, people might think that we're negative towards NDP, but we just gave them a great compliment, which is they have the most amazing press conferences. <laughs> yeah, they do. I mean, honestly, they're great communicators. They've got like 500 people in their communication staff over in Victoria. I, they must be tripping all over each other. Uh, the premier in his own office is, is beefed up his office by, by 65%. He's got a planning and priorities committee where they hired 10 people at 150 grand a piece to push around paper back and forth. I have no, it's not necessary. I'm telling you, we we already had a planning and priorities group in the bureaucracy. Why the, the, why they feel they have to hire every breathing person to work in government is beyond me, especially when it doesn't produce results. You know, as I said before, 30% increase in government's civil service, nobody has seen a 30% improvement in results anywhere. And so, you know, I just say to people, please understand, it is not about how many people you have working in government. It's about the quality of the people you have, the direction they're receiving, and the support they're getting from the political level. 
and I will make sure that our great public servants, because they are great, we've got very, very good ones, will get the support and direction that they need so they can do the great job they're capable of. All you need is to look across at Greece to see how well uh, hiring civil servants works for your economy. Um, <laughs> what taxes will you uh, revise, delete if you take the premier's office? Because let's face it, NDP have introduced a, a number of them. Um, just wanted to find out your thoughts on that. Well, they yeah, they've taken us to where we've got the highest marginal personal income tax rate almost in North America now, 53.5%. And what's interesting about that is when government is taking more than half your income, a lot of people just say, you know what, I'm not prepared to pay more than half my income to government. It's not right. It's unfair. And so, you know, at the same time, the NDP say they want to have, you know, a great tech industry and invite all these high income earners into British Columbia, uh, even doctors. I get doctors coming to me saying, Kevin, like, it is crazy. Not only do they layer all these costs on us, like five paid sick days that they now have to pay, doctors have to pay all their staff. I'm not saying it's a, a, a bad idea. I'm just saying government, if they think it's such a great idea, should be paying for those costs. The employer health tax that they've layered on to doctors and business right across this province. Um, all of these costs get uh, hit you know, on the small business community and add to costs and make it harder to get ahead in this province. And then once you've given away more than half your income, as, as, as many people are, are required to do it now under the NDP, then they got to go and try and buy a home where we have the highest housing prices in North America, where they go to fill up their minivan and they're paying the highest fuel prices in North America under this NDP government. They were before the war in Ukraine and they still are today. So to me, if, if I won't be specific about which taxes I'll get rid of or reduce, but I want everyone to know this. We will reduce the costs of government on individuals, and we will make sure we leave more money in your pockets than we than, than we currently are. When I first got elected in 2001, the very first thing we did, I'm still very proud of this, on our first day in office, was we did an across-the-board uh, personal income tax cut of 25%, and on the bottom two tax brackets, it was 28%. And we did that because we wanted to leave more money in pockets of British Columbians so that they can spend it as they see fit, not a government like this government that just wants to take the money in and spend it as they see fit. And generally speaking, government doesn't spend it in a very um, you know, smart way uh, for the most part. So um, that's something that I, I think is very important. We are going to be the government of affordability for British Columbians, and I mean genuine affordability. And I want to reduce the cost of government on people, and I want to make sure that families can feel like they're getting ahead, not being pummeled all the time by increased government red tape and, and taxes. Uh, the Okanagan is not Vancouver, Victoria. How can we get a, a bigger voice? Because sometimes it feels like we're, we're in a, an island, uh, and we're not an island. So uh, how can the Okanagan, and, and, and again, specifically... You know, we're speaking of Kelowna, but we have Penticton and our friends uh, all the way to Salmon Arm and everywhere else. How do we get that bigger voice in Victoria? Sure. And, and you know, I was just in Kamloops and Kelowna uh, just over the last couple of days, and I heard variations of this concern and, and how much worse it's gotten, frankly, um, under an NDP government. I sound like a broken record here, but but I'll tell you why I think that is the case. You know, when, when I was in government, you know, back from 2001 to 2012, uh, I remember, you know, four laning Summerland to Peachland. I remember building the William Bennett Bridge. I remember the expansion of the, you know, the Kelowna Hospital and the surgical, the uh, the heart unit, the cardiac uh, unit. I remember the uh, making sure we've, you know, built and, and filled the extra floor at the Vernon Hospital, et cetera. Like we did massive uh, improvements and we weren't perfect as government. I want to be clear about that. We made mistakes too, but we got the big things right. And we certainly knew how to get big projects done. There has been crickets ever since. And I think the reason is really simple. This NDP government is not like NDP governments in the past. You know, I would argue that some of the old NDP governments actually had some good MLAs, even if I disagreed with their policy, they were pretty plugged into the grassroots and got things done in different parts of the province. Today, it's a very different NDP government. It is an urban political party, full stop. All they care about is the lower mainland and Vancouver Island. That's it, because they view that they can stay in government forever if they can just win in those two areas. And I'm going to deprive them of that because I can guarantee you we are going to win back a lot of the seats in urban and suburban lower mainland. And I think we can win a couple on the island, too. I don't want to get too optimistic there, but I think we can win a couple. But, but the thing is, we're going to work hard and we're going to make sure that we 
represent not just the interests of, of the lower mainland and the island, but every part of this province. And trust me, I will not forget the interior, the caribou, the north, and the peace country, because I spent 12 years as Minister of Transportation traveling to every inch of this province. And I know every one of the roads and bridges and, and challenges that, that we face, and we will make sure that we're getting things done in the interior and in every part of the province. That I give you a promise. Well, if you can uh, be with me on Harvey Avenue on Highway 97 at about 337 on a Friday yeah. going into a long weekend, we, you and I can share thoughts about a second crossing perhaps. Absolutely. Um, how do you uh, not get caught up in the rhetoric? In, in other words, fringe issues that can, they can distract from the work at hand. Like, I mean, that, that is going to be an issue going forward is, and, and I've seen this federally, provincially. Um, and again, everyone will say every issue is important, but I really love it if there's a, a category and a priority as far as relevance across the population. And, and again, no issue is not important. I'm not saying that, but there's certain issues that we need to lean in on, and 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 there's a sequence to them. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I just Rick, that's such a great question because I can tell you that the biggest challenge in government is losing focus, and it's easy to lose focus because there's a million little things happening. People are snapping at your heels all the time, and everyone thinks their issue is a priority, and so so governments like the current one get easily distracted and, and you're like a bobble in a river just you know roaring down out of control um i can tell you you know this is where my private sector background i think is really helpful i really believe in focus and i can tell you in government what you have to do is you've got to establish what your priorities are then you got to work on those priorities and you got to deliver on them and when you deliver on them you tick that box and you move on to the next group of priorities that you have and you just work your way down sequentially i intend prior to the next election, to lay out a policy platform that I want people to be able to look at and read and say, okay, we know where he stands and we can hold him accountable for this. And I want them to hold me accountable for it because that's that's why you should be running for office, to be held accountable for delivering on the commitments that you made. And so many parties and government don't. And I'm fed up with that. I, I tell you, I want to be held accountable. I will hold myself accountable and I will hold my caucus accountable and the cabinet ministers, I can assure you, for getting those things done. Their mandate letters will be very clear about what I expect and what they are responsible for delivering. And I will, you know, I will stay on top of it and monitor it and push and push and push and make sure we get those things done. Because at the end of the day, look, I, I don't want to be in politics forever. Every year that I'm in politics is, is time away from my family and it's lost opportunity in a whole bunch of ways I won't even bother you with. But but I can tell you this, the time I spend will be time well spent, and it's going to be focused on results. I think there's another group that will hold you accountable, too, and it's called your family. Uh, my <laughs> family is very much the same way, which is if you're going to take time away from us, let's make that effective. And uh, so they're, yeah, they're very good at uh, keeping people on, on track, that's for sure. <laughs> True. This this word does get you know used a lot, and I, I think sometimes it gets watered down, and, and I think sometimes it becomes too abstract. But leadership is a big word, and and with that, um, from my perspective, sometimes you have to be an unpopular, make an unpopular choice. Um, what what does if you were to define leadership for you, what what does that leadership mean for Kevin Falcon? Sure, you, you've defined it really well, actually, because um, sometimes being a leader is lonely and sometimes the decisions you make are going to be tough. I remember when we brought in um, North America's very first revenue neutral carbon tax. That wasn't easy in my riding in Surrey, I can tell you. They, you know, a lot of the folks were like, what are you doing to us? And but when I patiently explained that every dollar generated is going to have to be returned to them in the form of lower personal income taxes and lower business taxes. In other words, it was a tax shift not a tax grab, then they started to come around. And I would argue that's why we won the 2009 election because we were leaders on the environment. Even though when we first introduced it, it was tough for people to get their heads around and, and it was hard, but that's leadership. Uh, and and I, I believe in bold leadership like that. And and unfortunately, I have to say, just to close the loop on that revenue neutral carbon tax, the NDP's first budget that they brought in eliminated the tax shift part and they turned it into a tax grab. They just take that money into government now. Billions of dollars that should have been returned to British Columbians in the form of lower personal income taxes and lower business taxes, they now take into government. And at a time 
when we're paying the highest fuel prices in North America, it's doubly offensive because they could have helped, you know, soften the blow by having a lot of those billions of dollars returned back to the public. However, I digress. The, the key is that every major project I've been involved with, whether it was the Portman Bridge, even when I took the tolls off the, uh, the, the Coquihalla, for example, that was controversial in some circles. Um, but, you know, it's important that you be guided by principles. One of our principles in government back then was that, you know, when the, all the infrastructure is paid off, the toll comes off. That's the right thing to do. And, and so once that, uh, you know, the original Coquihalla and the extension to, to Kelowna were paid off, we, there was no good reason for us to keep that toll on there anymore. So we followed through and took it off. Uh, but, but it doesn't matter whether it was a Portman Bridge or the Canada Line. I had people opposing all kinds of things. But I said, no, we're going to do it because it's the right thing. The Canada Line is a great example because I had a bunch of mayors, believe it or not, that said it, it was terrible. The NDP said it was going to be a boondoggle. It was built and delivered ahead of schedule and under budget. But just think about that. How often does that ever happen? And it's been a huge success. More than 100,000 people a day are riding the Canada Line today. Something that, you know, had a lot of opposition at the time. So I will always be uh, making the right decision for the province and the kids, our next generation, even if it's tough. And I think that that's uh, the kind of leadership that's important for the public, but also, frankly, for me, because I don't want to walk out of public life and say, great, I managed to avoid every hard decision that there was in front of me, and I just left things no better. That's not me. I'm not wired that way. So, Well, I appreciate that. And, and leadership is, um, and it was told to me by uh, our ex-CAO, uh, Rama Tusi, who mentioned sometimes decisions are between two two issues and and he says sometimes you just choose the less evil of the two issues that that can be part of things yeah. too yeah. um i have a final question and, and it just goes off the heels of the carbon tax but your views and and again we kind of know what the ndp's views are on on uh on bc's energy sector uh in your eyes is this bc is is laden with resources we have we have mining we have oil and gas, we have a number of things um, that we can be proud of. And and a lot of people with, with higher gas prices are starting to go, mm, maybe a pipeline is not such a bad idea. What are your thoughts towards just the energy sector in BC? And, and you don't sure. have to get into specifics, but just, just an overview. Uh, okay, so I'll be quick. First of all, energies broadly defined can mean also energy generation and so that's why i was always proud to be part of a bc liberal government even back in 2012 that was pushing forward the site c project in the teeth of vigorous opposition by the ndp and including john horgan who went up there to protest to say don't do it etc etc now fortunately christy clark under the christy clark government i wasn't there but continued to move that project forward uh, to the point where fortunately it was advanced enough that the ndp couldn't cancel it though they wanted to uh, now that's important because, uh, unfortunately, though, they held off, you know, they stopped construction for almost a year and that drove prices way up. Now it's gone from $8 billion to $16 billion. But I will say this, that that power generation is going to be hugely important as we transition to a future where, you know, one day most people will be driving electric vehicles or hydrogen, you know, fuel powered uh, vehicles. And, and that's the kind of long term vision and leadership that's necessary. It would never have been built had the NDP been in power and people need to know this and understand this. That's why I admire the previous leaders like W.A.C. Bennett and Bill Bennett and Gordon Campbell and the people that recognize that these huge uh, generational investments are important because they're thinking about their grandkids. And that's how we will be in government too. Now, we also have um, uh, things like the pipeline you mentioned. Now, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, you know, when the the owner of the day said, you know what, it's been delivering, it's the only pipeline that delivers fuel to the lower mainland uh, from Alberta. And when they said we need to triple the size of it so that we can get more supply, here we go again, supply, into the lower mainland marketplace, what did the NDP do? John Horgan said he was going to, quote, use every tool in the toolbox to stop it. And they did. They spent millions of taxpayer dollars in frivolous lawsuits that ultimately all lost, but it's, it delayed it enough that the private sector operators said, we're out of here. And they sold it to the federal government. Now the feds own it, and the cost has gone from $12 billion to $21 billion. And, and, and then the NDP look around and wonder, gee, why do we have the highest fuel prices in North America? Well, once again, right? So here's the thing. Um, we also have an LNG uh, when you talk about uh, um, natural resources. 
LNG is hugely important because if we can get China and India to move off of coal-fired power and use LNG, which we have an enormous amount uh, here in British Columbia, that will reduce emissions by up to 25%. That's like emptying every single car in the freeway in Canada uh, for a year. Well, let's do it. Let's, let's help them get to where they need to go. And finally, I'll say this. We also have all of the critical mineral resources needed to fuel a green future, whether it's building electric vehicles or building uh, wind turbines or whatever the case may be. British Columbia has a lot of those minerals, but they do no good to help the world transition to a greener future if they're stuck in the ground. So we have to have certainty and timeliness in order to get those out of the ground and get them to helping the world transition to a greener future. And, and under a Kevin Falcon-led BC Liberal government, we will do that because we understand that you don't get to the promised land overnight. You can't just flick a switch and we're suddenly all green. It's a transition. And I get that there's some people out there that say there should be no fossil fuels, stop everything right now, end it. But but here's the problem, we, we, you can't do that unless you just wanna rely on nations like Saudi Arabia and, and, and other places that have absolutely, Russia, for example, that have no human rights, no environmental standards to speak of, um, to rely on them to help us transition. I don't want to do that. I want to make sure that the, you know, the country with the highest emission and environmental standards is the one delivering the, the uh, supplies that we need while we transition to that green future. I got to say, I've I've enjoyed this chat. Uh, we would probably get you back on the show because uh, you know, I think a lot of these issues resonate with uh, the Okanagan and uh, I so appreciate the time and I'm so happy that we got to uh, to spend the time so again uh, leader of BC Liberals Kevin Falcon I just can't say enough thanks so so much for being on the the Rick and Friends show and we'll have you back I'm sure great thanks so much Rick look forward to coming back again in the future all the best take care all right